All right, good evening, everybody. How you guys doing? Hope you guys had a good afternoon. I don't know what happened over to this side of the room, you know, that <laughs> David is that offensive to everybody and he just, everyone vacated that position. <laughs> um, before we start, uh, I was wondering if I could get some help handing out uh, our outline for tonight. Wow, oh my goodness, they're peeping now. See, your husband didn't even bother raising his hand. He just walked, okay, that's how it works in your marriage. So, <laughs> thank you. And I, 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 uh, I, I texted Alan a couple of days ago and asked, like, how many people are going to this retreat? Because one of these messages, the outline is getting kind of ridiculous. And I think that they're going to need something in front of them in order to make heads or tails of some of the stuff we're going to be going through. Uh, and so this is going to be kind of your guide through uh, our talk this evening. And uh, so before we get into God's word for tonight, let's pray together and we'll ask for his help. Let's pray. God, we uh, are so excited to come before your word again. I thank you for uh, these precious brothers and sisters here, for uh, these people that you've gathered together for this weekend, uh, to be able to just think more deeply and more fervently about what it means to love you and to love one another. And I pray, God, that that is what Redeemer Bible Church would be known for, a place where Christ is exalted and esteemed and treasured above all things, and that his members would care for one another with a fierce and loyal love. So God, I pray that you'll be with us again as we see what your word has in store for us, as we talk about what it means to love one another. We pray that you would continue to transform us uh, by the power of your word. In Christ, let me pray. Amen. All right, so this morning we were talking about loving God and what it meant to love God and to be satisfied with him. We looked at Psalm 63. And the natural outcome, if God is the center of everything that we are, if God is the center of our universe, of our solar system, as we talked about the first night, then everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be as it should be. And our conduct will be fitting of the name of Christian because Christ will be at the center of everything that we do. And one of the big areas of life, life that has to come into the right place when we have God at the center is our relationships with others. How we relate to others is intimately tied to how we relate to God. If we love God rightly, then necessarily we will love others rightly. And out of the overflow of God's love for us and our satisfaction in him, we're going to be free to love others, to commit ourselves to the good of others. You know, in Matthew 22, Jesus says that we ought to love, um, love others as we love ourselves. And some people have kind of tripped over exactly what Jesus means by that. Because some people have taken that to mean, oh, well, I've had to love others as I love myself. Well, I guess that means I've got to love myself first. And so I really need to have a pretty high estimation of myself. I can't look down on myself. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to love other people, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus means. What he actually is saying is that he already assumes that people love themselves. And in fact, the Bible says our problem is that we love each other. We love ourselves too much. Our problem usually is not that we love ourselves too little, but that we love ourselves too much. But what he's talking about is this natural inclination we have to care for our own basic needs. That we naturally, if a bus is barreling down toward us, usually out of love for self and a desire not to die, we tend to move our bodies out of the way so we're able to not die. We have this sense of looking out for our best interests innately born into us. And so when Jesus says that we love others as we love ourselves, what he's simply saying is that we commit ourselves to, this, to, good, to the good of others with the same intensity and fervor and commitment that we do already for ourselves. Then when I look at you, I am just as committed to your good as I instinctively am to myself. And beyond that, the Bible would say, I have to consider you better than myself to put your needs above my own. 
It is not enough, though, just to have this vague understanding of what it means to love people. Probably everyone here would agree that we ought to be loving, that we should be loving, that we need to be more loving than we probably are. But it's not just enough to just have this idea in your mind, okay, Uh, and to simply resolve to be a more loving person. Uh, One of the best feelings in the world for me is having a full tank of gas. And I... um, I live in, I live in, everything in my life now is in one city. And my, my church is two miles away from my house. I have a Prius, which means I, you know, I had I, never had to fill up my gas tank. I fill up my gas tank, I think, like once a month. But there's something about having a full gas tank. You look at that gauge and you see the, like, the zero on the odometer and you think, I can go anywhere. Like, I'm, the world's my oyster. I can, like, I can go anywhere I want to within 400 miles, right? And... And, but, you know, if I had that full tank of gas and the smug satisfaction that I can go anywhere, but I just park the car in the driveway and don't go anywhere, it kind of defeats the purpose of having a full tank of gas. And it's kind of the same with our understanding of what it means to be loving. Like everyone would agree we need to be loving, we want to be loving, but that love has to go somewhere. It has to be directed toward people in a very specific way. It has to work itself out in practical ways in your relationship with others. So this question of what it looks like to love others practically, it could, it could occupy a lot more than just the weekend that we have here. It would be worthwhile to think about what this means in marriage or in parenting, in your friendships, in your community, in the world. But since this is your all-church retreat, and this is you know, one of the chances where you all get to be here together as Redeemer Bible Church, I, I was thinking that we would talk about what it means to be loving in the church, what it means to love each other as the church. And Jesus says in John 13 that our love for one another as believers is one of the most powerful witnessing tools we have. He says in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you want to testify to the world that your church is different. If you want to show the unbelieving world, your unbelieving co-workers, your unbelieving parents that something is different about your life then you will love the people at Redeemer Bible Church in such a unique and incredible way that it will scream out to the world that your Jesus is real. And so tonight, I want to focus on a particular, one of the most fundamental ways that we are called to love one another in the church. And that's through discipleship. Okay, discipleship. And so we're going to be thinking about what it means to love one another through discipleship. And so we're going to be kind of tackling this topic. It's a big topic. And so we're not focusing on one scripture. We're going to look at a bunch of different ones to kind of see what the Bible as a whole says about discipleship. But the first question we have to ask is, what is a disciple, right? It's a word that we chuck around in the Christian language and we kind of think we know what it means, but it's worth bearing out. A Christian disciple is anyone who has committed themselves to following Jesus Christ as a Savior and Lord. And so the word disciple at the very fundamental level means a follower. Someone who's decided to follow in the footsteps, to follow the teaching and leadership and authority of another. And so for Christians, that another person, the person we're following is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. He's the one who's died for us. He is the one that was raised for us. He's the one that commands all facets of life. And this is an all-in call. If you claim to be a Christian, you by definition are going to be a disciple. Mark 8.34 says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The person who says he wants to follow Jesus has to be all in and say, all of my life now is committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
So if that's a disciple, then what is discipleship? So discipleship is, so if, if being a disciple is, a, is kind of the vertical relationship we have with Jesus, discipleship, as we're talking about it tonight, is this horizontal level of relationships. G discipleship is an intentional relationship in which one Christian mentors another Christian with the, help of help, with the goal of helping each other follow Christ more faithfully. Okay, so let's look at this definition. You know, I chose these words very intentionally here, or very you know, purposefully. So the idea that it's an intentional thing. It's intentional. Discipleship is intentional. So discipleship is not something that happens on accident. Okay, this is something that has, you have to decide, this is what you're about. You know, so when I'm just hanging out with my friends at church, even though we're all Christians, if we're, if we're not being intentional about what we're doing, chances are we're just going to end up talking about coffee and video games. That's just kind of what the conversation is going to end up leaning towards. We have to intentionally decide, no, this is what our relationships are going to be about, about following Jesus Christ together. It's a relationship. It's an intentional relationship. When you're in a discipleship relationship, whether you're mentoring somebody else or someone is mentoring you, the disciple is not a project. They're not your minion. Um, and I have to counsel myself with this. They're not my built-in babysitters in life. You know, I'm not discipling people so I can have free childcare only. Um, they're not a means to an end, right? They're your brother or sister that you're linking arms with so that you can follow Christ together. And this is a Christian mentoring another Christian. So this is a relationship that exists amongst Christians and only Christians. We can have relationships with non-believers, but it's one of friendship and evangelism. We're trying to show them who Jesus is for the first time. But in discipleship, a more seasoned or more mature Christian comes alongside someone else who's a little bit less mature or a little less seasoned to walk towards Christ together. And what is it that the goal is? The goal is to help each other follow Christ more faithfully. Every relationship you have is built on something. Every relationship you have has a common touch point that you keep returning to. That's the reference point for why you're in a relationship in the first place. And for some of you, you have friends that they're just your sports friends. They're just the friends that you watch sports with, that you talk about sports with. Uh, for some of your friends, you have these shopping buddies. You know, like you never see this person other than when you go shopping together. Maybe you have like movie friends, like movies come out and you just know that on opening night, you're going to go to the theater. You're going to see the movie you've been waiting to see. Some of you have Dungeons and Dragons friends. None of you probably do. I wish I did. I, I love, does anyone play Dungeons and Dragons here? <laughs> No one? No one? Okay. I'm looking for someone. I'm looking for a crew. Uh, come talk to me afterwards. Um, or maybe like people are just in the same season of life as you. You're all in grad school together or you all dislike your parents together. Or maybe you're all, you know, or you're married or you have parents or you, your parents and you have kids. But in a discipleship relationship, the common touch point of that relationship is that you are pursuing Christ together. It doesn't mean that those other things don't exist, right? I wish I had Dungeons & Dragons friends. But they all revolve around this central goal of helping each other grow in Christ. So in other words, one of the ways that we're called to follow Christ individually as individual disciples of Christ is to join hands together with other disciples so that we can follow him together. And this, I would argue, is one of the primary ways that we love one another in the church that we commit ourselves to the task of discipleship. I think the most direct way of seeing this is in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 
uh, verses 18 to 20. And this is Jesus right before he ascends into heaven. And he gives his disciples the mandate that's going to drive what it is they're going to do in the church in this age. He says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is oftentimes a passage that is used to motivate missions, to motivate you to give to missions, to motivate you to sell all your earthly belongings and move to, the, to a third world country. Because the first part of Jesus' statement here is, Go! Go, therefore, and make disciples. And so the emphasis for many people is, Go! But in actuality, in the original language, the main verb is make disciples. That's kind of the overarching idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. And going and baptizing and teaching are all just different ways that we make disciples. But there's no question in Jesus' mind that the most important task of the Christian is to make disciples. This includes evangelism, proclaiming Jesus for the first time to someone so that they can become a disciple. But not just getting them through the door, but walking alongside them so that they can begin to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. To not just make them disciples at the, at the very beginning of the relationship with Christ, but to walk with them all the way through till they see Jesus again. Another really profound passage that discusses this is in Colossians 1.28. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul is saying that the job of the Christian is to talk about Jesus. To proclaim Jesus, to admonish, to teach, to instruct, to warn. And the, with the purpose of making sure that we're presenting everyone we come in contact with as mature in Christ. Complete in Christ. Grown up in Christ. What he's saying is that we all are linking arms together and pulling each other towards the finish line and saying, we're going to do this. We're all in this together, Redeemer Bible Church. We're going to be disciples. You know, I don't know what your impression of discipleship is uh, or your experience of discipleship look like. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever thought about it. For some of you, uh, this is something that you're very familiar with. I know for me, uh, the idea of discipleship that I had in my mind was kind of discipleship as is often experienced in college, okay? And college students have just so much time on their hands, right? Just like you have like two hours of class a day and then nothing for the rest of the day. And you're also going to like a Christian fellowship or you're part of a church and someone's discipling you, right? And so what happens? You get together with that person like at, you know, in the middle of the day at like 11 o'clock at a coffee shop and, and you stay at that coffee shop for five hours, you know, and you're going through a book together. And in the course of that five hours, you're laughing, you're crying, you're, you're, having, you're, tell, you're sharing your dreams and your disciples crushing your dreams to the ground. And then, and then by the time you're done with your 11 o'clock meeting, it's dinner time. And then you go get dinner, right? And then you continue the discipleship meeting. And that's what discipleship looks like until the person discipling you graduates. And then you're left alone, right? And then you have to then disciple somebody else. That was my understanding of discipleship. And it can be that. Absolutely, it can be that. But I would argue that it can be much more than that. I think what Jesus is advocating, what the Bible is advocating, is that discipleship encompasses a whole spectrum of different kinds of relationships. Think of it as a spectrum. I mean, you have those kinds of relationships where that maybe on one end of the spectrum, there are people who are in crisis. 
you know, marriages that are on the brink of disaster, people who are going through immense suffering and, and just terrible, terrible loss, people who are embattled and in, enslaved to sin. The answer for that is discipleship. People need to walk alongside them and counsel them well in those moments of absolute despair and darkness. And on the other side of it, you just have people that, you know, they're growing, they're walking, and they're pursuing Christ wholeheartedly, but they still need to do it with other people. They still need people to encourage them and, and push them along in the faith. And all along this continuum, people need different kinds of help, different kinds of discipleship. And so we're going to talk a little more practically about exactly what that can look like, but it can be structured, you know, where you're, everything's mapped out for you, or it can be unstructured, just kind of happens organically. It can be formal, like this is a formal relationship where this is my discipler, I am that guy's disciple, disciple depending on where you go, and, and you know, this is our relationship. Or it could be really informal, where, you know, there's just this guy in my life who every now and then he asks me how I'm doing, and he encourages me in the faith whenever we just happen to get together. It could be a one-time lunch to a lifetime friendship. I mean, discipleship can, can span this entire spectrum of experience. And we're going to talk more about what can actually, actually happen in these discipleship relationships later on. But that is what discipleship is. Now, who should be involved in discipleship? Who should be involved in discipleship? And the answer to this is everyone. Everyone should be involved in discipleship. If you are a follower of Christ, then you are called to be involved in discipleship. And this means that you both need to be a disciple. Someone needs to disciple you and you need to disciple others. We need to be discipled and we need to disciple. It is absolutely a biblical requirement. When Jesus gives the great commission, he's not just leaving it there for the remaining apostles. He's not leaving that as a task for pastors or teachers or anyone who's gone to seminary or Bible college. If you enter into the kingdom of God as one of his children, then you are also called to be a discipler. <clears throat> now, there's some object- objections here. Um, I think they're often common in our circles and common maybe in our hearts. Like, isn't that, here's some objections I was thinking of. Like, isn't that what pastors are for? Discipleship sounds awesome. It sounds great for Cho and Allen to do. Good luck with that, guys. And it's true, you know, pastors and teachers and elders are supposed to disciple, but mostly because they're Christians, not because of a special role that they have as an office of the church. And in fact, in Ephesians 4.11, this, this, this is really striking to figure out what the job of the pastor is, okay? He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up to the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what Paul is arguing in Ephesians is that God instituted apostleship and prophets and evangelists, and now in our age, shepherds and teachers, for this job to equip you, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Alan and Cho and whatever elders have existed in your life, They exist, their job is to equip you so you can carry on the task of ministry. Far too often in the church, even in kind of our circles, there's a tacit expectation that all the heavy lifting, all the really super hard spiritual things must lie on the backs of the pastors and the teachers. And, you know, for us, it's okay if we show up and, you know, we're happy to put away chairs every now and then and and to give our offering. But when it comes to 
I don't know, meeting up with someone who's going through a difficult time or inviting a family over when my own life is kind of crazy right now, that I just don't know if that's really what God is calling me to do. Isn't that, that, should be, isn't that what we're paying Alan for? Look at him. He's just sitting there smugly with all of his, his pastoral income. Isn't this what his job is? No, his job is to teach you and equip you to be able to do the work of ministry. Uh, another objection. I'm not mature enough. Or I'm not godly enough. Or I'm not smart enough. You, know, you might feel as if you were unqualified in some ways. There's no way I can meet up with someone. My life is a mess. I'm struggling in my own areas of life. Uh, I don't know the Bible as well as I ought to. What if they ask me a really hard question? I just, it just terrifies me because I'm not qualified. And there may be some areas of weakness in your life. And some of those weaknesses may be real. You might actually be struggling in some area. Some of those struggles might be perceived. Like you might actually fear that you don't know anything, but in actuality you do. But whatever weakness you perceive in your life, you have one of two options. You can either take that as a reason to withdraw and say, okay, you know what? I just, I'm just not qualified for that. I'm just going to back away from the task altogether. Or you can see it as an opportunity to grow. You know, I don't, I don't know my Bible very well. I guess I should learn my Bible better. I guess I should get cracking on this so I can disciple somebody else. But just seeing that you have a weakness in your Christian life shouldn't automatically, you know, disqualify you in your own mind from doing anything for God's kingdom. I mean, that'd be like, um, it happens to my kids all the time. You know, they're eating dinner. And if any of you guys have sat with my kids so far, you can tell Abby's a pretty neat eater. Sophie's a train wreck. She is just like, everything's all over the place. This guy's even worse right here. You're, you're, you're the worst, buddy. And, and um, you know, and sometimes our kids will like, they'll get stuff on their hands and, or just get stuff on their face. And all of a sudden, they start wigging out. You know, because they realize that they're a total mess, right? So Sophie would be like, ah, 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 right? And she's sitting there just, just mortified by the fact that she's filthy. And there's a napkin right in front of her. And they say, dude, you just wipe it off, you know? You don't have to, like, pitch a fit. You can do something about it. And I think sometimes that's the way we are when we look at the weaknesses in our Christian lives. We think, you know, I have a hard time being disciplined in prayer. You know, I, I'm, I get angry. You know, I'm struggling in this area of my life. <laughs> right? And, and the Bible would say, okay, then fight your sin. Be disciplined. Ask someone else to come along and help you so you can help others. But don't look at your weaknesses, whether they're real or perceived, and think that they disqualify you. And to the response that you're not mature enough, the answer is that you're always more mature than somebody. There's always somebody in life that you are more mature in then um, maybe in not all areas of life, but in some area of life. I mean, you may not decide that when you disciple somebody that you're going to be parsing Greek verbs with them and, you know, deciding on the merits of superlapsarianism or something. But you can pray for somebody and you can ask them how they're doing and you can read a book with them. I think one of the really natural ways that if you feel kind of low on the scale of maturity as a Christian, children are oftentimes just the most wonderful outlet for our discipleship. I mean, the kids that are here are so blessed because there's not that many of them, and there are a ton of you, which means that they ought to be the most discipled people in the world, right? Like Haley's 10, is that right? So, I mean, she's getting into these teenage years, and she should be surrounded by an army of women who are just like in her ear all the time, nagging her about how she can follow Jesus better. And because you're more mature than her, you're definitely more mature than a 10-year-old, I would hope. I don't know, maybe 
questionable for you. You're kind of on the fence, right? But <laughs> no. Um, so you don't need to be perfect in order to disciple somebody. You just need to humbly point them to the one who is perfect. You're not trying to get them to imitate you. You're trying to get them to imitate Christ and you're pointing them to the perfection of his life, not the perfection of your life. How about this excuse? I'm too busy. I'm in grad school. I'm a parent. Football season's here. I'm just busy. There's a lot of stuff going on. And to that, I would argue that you can never be too busy for something that God requires. I mean, the simple answer is that if you're too busy to make time to invest in other believers, then there's something else in your life that needs to be adjusted, not discipleship. I think another kind of misnomer in this, or what the assumption is often made in this, uh, I guess, in, disciple, uh, in, in this objection to discipleship, is that some people have a limited view of what discipleship can be and should be. Where they have that picture in their mind of meeting up in the middle of the week at a coffee shop for five hours every week. And, not, and beyond that, like reading like massive tomes of Christian literature to prepare for that meeting every week. And you're looking at your life, you know, and, and it's like, I don't have the time for that. Like, I, I have barely enough time to, you know, fold my laundry. I've just been living out of the same laundry basket for the past, like, five months. I can't meet up with these people, right? But I think what you're not considering and when you're not allowing to be a possibility are less formal ways of discipling. Again, there's this whole spectrum of opportunity and spectrum of, of ways to disciple people. Um, I think my wife, Jamie, is one of the busiest people I know. I mean, you, you see our kids, and they're active, just to put it kindly. And they require a lot of attention. She is a magnificent kind of manager of the household and making sure that everything is ship-shape and in order. Um, like, I, I, I eat very well. Like, I, she tells me not to fold the laundry, mostly because I do a terrible job at it, and so she's able to do that for me. Um, she is a busy, busy woman. And one of the things that I admire the most about this recent season of life is that she's been thinking really hard about what it means to be a discipler in a very busy season. Because right now, she's not at the season of life where she can duck away for hours to meet up with people. And sometimes people will ask her for that, right? You know, hey, can you, I, I really would like you to disciple me, Jamie. You know, so I'm, I'm free on um, Wednesdays at 11, you know, and I really want to learn eschatology or something like that. And say, like, well, you know, um, here's what I'm available for. Uh, I need to go grocery shopping on this day. You can come with me and we can talk and you can help me hang out with the kids. And we'll just talk about stuff. And we can do that every other week. That's, that, that's discipleship. And it's kind of a, it's realizing that you know, this is the limitation maybe right now in this season of life. But she's still fighting to make that a priority. And so you know, there are days when I'll come over and I just don't know who's going to be in the house. Because Jamie's inviting ladies over. She's having young women uh, come over. And they get to see a different part of life. And that is discipleship. Another objection is I'm new. Or I don't know anybody that well. Uh, it seems intimidating to me to go into this totally, relatively unknown group of people and you know, ask for discipleship or offer to disciple somebody. And my encouragement would be not to give up, but to start small. Okay, so it would be kind of awkward, right, if you're, if, you know, the second week you're here, it's like, you know, you're introducing yourself to somebody. It's like, hi, you know, my name is whatever, and uh, I would like for you to invest in, my, you know, invest in me for eternal purposes until I die. You know, can we do that together, please, for God's glory? You know, that's a little intense. Uh, you might want to start a little bit smaller. Just get to know people first. But you need, one simple thing is just to take the initiative. And you're not proposing for marriage, right? You're just saying, like, hey, you know, 
Can I, I'd love to hang out with you more and just get to know you a little bit better. Let's grab lunch one of these weeks. You free? And what you've done there is you've initiated the beginnings of a discipleship relationship. I mean, it may or may not lead to something that's huge or long-lasting, but for that conversation, for that lunch, you can encourage one another towards Christ-likeness. So if you're new or you feel like you don't know anybody, just take the initiative. Don't wait. Don't wait for somebody to come find you because you know that this is something that you need for yourself. So all that to say, this is not optional. Discipling others is not reserved for some ultra-high tier of Christianity. Being discipled is not reserved for those who are really messed up in life. This is something that each person here needs to be involved with. You need to disciple and you need to be discipled. Now, why should we do this? Why should we be involved in discipleship? I think the simplest answer is that because the Bible says so. You know, I think that oftentimes is a good enough reason. You know, if God says we're supposed to do it, then it's worth pursuing. But beyond that, I think there's even more reasons why. And I think that one of the first reasons and the reasons why we need to be discipled and we need to disciple is because we're needy. We are very needy people. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 describes what kinds of needs we have. It says, We urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. There are times when we are idle, and there are times when we're faint-hearted and we're weak, and we need help. We need other people to come alongside us to lovingly and firmly and wisely show us what we need to, how we need to grow in the Christian life. It is not the case that we can simply decide, you know, I just got to try harder. I just got to get better. I just got to level up on my own. I was counseling a guy uh, not that long ago, and we met for several months. We met almost every week for hours and hours and hours. And he was really struggling with some significant areas of sin, and we would keep making progress, and he was kind of backslide and keep making progress and backslide. And then one day I get an email out of the blue, and he tells me, it's like, you know, I had a really, really bad week this week. And, you know, I need to stop, we need to stop meeting together so I can get my life back in order. And I wrote back to him and said, you are making the exact opposite choice you need to. Like, if you perceive that you had a terrible week, the last thing you need is to be alone. The last thing you need is to try to decide to figure it out on your own. You need to be surrounded by brothers and sisters so they can help you, so they can encourage you, so they can remind you of what's true. Because when we tend to shrink ourselves down to our own lives and we ignore the counsel of others, we tend to misinterpret life. And I haven't seen that guy since. I have no idea what he's up to. And I wonder what kinds of lies he's been telling himself and believing because he is not surrounded by people that are going to be counseling him well and discipling him well. He was much needier than he thought he was. And we are much needier than we think we are. We're blind to the areas of need in our own lives. And we need others to point those areas out. And it's not just that we're needy, but we are needed. We are needy and needed at the same time. Because we are not the only ones who have needs. We are not the only ones who are weak. But we also need to be the source of help for those who are needy. Other people need us. John Piper has said that we ought not to be cul-de-sacs of grace. You guys know what a cul-de-sac is, right? There's a street that has no outlet. It looks like a lollipop, you know, like you drive in the street and this is a big turnaround at the end of the street and say, well, uh, nowhere to go. You <laughs> come on back, right? Because traffic cannot pass through a cul-de-sac. 
So cars go in and they just stay in there, right? And what Piper's argument is, is that we ought not to be cul-de-sacs of grace, where we become the repository and the recipients of all this blessing and all this ministry, all this counsel, all this discipleship, all this wisdom, and we just hoard it for ourselves. We just keep it to ourselves and we keep leveling it up, leveling it up, leveling it up, and it has nowhere to go. Now, we ought to be conduits of grace. We ought to take everything that we've been received, all the things that people have poured into us, and we need to dish it out to others and give it away. People need us, and we need to help people meet those needs. You know, our difficulty, I think, is when we unnecessarily and wrongfully start fixating on one of those two realities. And we overemphasize one of those things to the detriment of the other. That we, I think sometimes we fixate on how needy we are. And that's our focus. And that's kind of our tunnel vision. And when that happens, we fail to meet the needs of others. We become self-absorbed. We become bitter. We resent it when people don't give us the attention we need. We evaluate people based on how much they're serving us and doing uh, what we want them to do. But the Bible says we need to consider others more important than ourselves to see the needs of others being a greater priority than us. And the other possibility is that you fixate on how much you are needed and you don't recognize that you are needy. And in those cases, we become proud. We become self-reliant or hypocritical. We turn away the counsel of others or rebukes of others. We figure, you know, I, I got this. I can figure this out. Because what is the church going to do without me? If I come forward with this thing, like how in the world is the church going to function? Because they need me around. But we need to realize that we can't do it on our own. That we are just fellow beggars at the foot of God's door who are simply telling other beggars where they can find the next meal. That's all we are. We need to see that we are both needy and needed at the same time. And this is what fuels discipleship. That we need to be discipled. And we need to disciple others. And we need others to come alongside us. And we need to come alongside others. Now finally, practically speaking, how, what does this look like? How should we be involved in discipleship? And this is hopefully where we'll get into some of the nitty gritty. I think that discipleship can be done informally and formally. It can be done informally and formally. Um, informal discipleship is just the discipleship that happens without planning it. You know, just because of the rich relationship you have with a person in Christ and, and, and your trust in them and their love for you, where, you know, it, discipleship just happens kind of organically and kind of naturally. Um, this past week, my wife and I got invited out to a dinner uh, with some really dear friends of ours who are older. Uh, and they're probably in, their, probably in their 50s now, I would say. And over the years, you know, they've just become almost like spiritual parents to us um, and they have just counseled us and loved us and been so generous with us. they love our girls they almost treat their our girls and owen too i guess and they'll treat owen like um they treat them like their own grandkids and we just love them you know and so they called us up and say hey, let's go grab dinner one of these nights and we sat down for dinner and it was this long leisurely dinner uh, it took a couple hours to get through and they just kept asking us questions about how we were doing you know and asked us about how our marriage was how parenting was and we would ask them questions about how they handle certain situations in life. And it was just this thrilling, great evening. And I don't know when it's going to happen next. I can't wait for it to happen next, but it was just this informal thing. And so I think that you ought to look for those kinds of opportunities. And it's hard sometimes, I think, to have informal discipleship when you're just rushing past one another. 
where Sunday mornings and Sunday lunches and all your meetings together are all about business and getting stuff done, and you don't take the time to stop and slow down and really ask like, how the other person is doing. But we need to be about informal discipleship. And I think there ought to be also formal discipleship. And by, what I, by that I mean you're asking someone specifically to disciple you or for you to disciple. And this is going to be a formal relationship, a formal agreement that you're going to relate to each other in this way, that someone's going to get discipled and someone is going to disciple. Now, how do you choose someone to do this? How do you choose someone? First of all, how do you choose someone for you to disciple. So let's say you're convicted by this message and fire is burning in your heart and say, I'm going to disciple somebody. How do I do it? Who do I choose? Right? I'm looking around. Like very few people in this room. Someone's going to get it, right? How do I choose? And here's the qualify, here's the qualify, um, how you qualify someone for whether or not you disciple them. They need to be fat. They need to be fat. Okay, F-A-T. They need to be fat. They need to be faithful. <laughs> they need to be faithful. They need to be available, and they need to be teachable. They need to be faithful, they need to be available, and they need to be teachable. They need to be faithful. They need to be around. They need to have demonstrated in some facet of life that they are truly committed to Christ, that they're truly committed to the church, they're committed to his word. They're not perfect, but you can see that they're striving and they're working towards it. They need to be available. It means that they need to be around and actually be willing to commit themselves to time to meet with you and to be able to do all the things that you're going to ask of them to do as a discipler. Uh, and, and my wife has been asked a number of times to be discipled by women, uh, by, you know, sometimes by college students, and, and they have all these aspirations of being like, oh, I'm going to get the, this pastor's wife to disciple me. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be fantastic. And Jamie will think, okay, we'll go for this, you know? And they're just... The, and so Jamie will try to schedule a meeting, right? And say, oh, you know, I'm actually, f- I'm not free, you know, uh, that week. Is it, can we think of a, can we come up with another time? And Jamie will say, oh, sure. When are you free? I'm free um, next quarter. Yeah, I'm rushing a sorority right now. It's kind of hard for me to make time for it. But yeah, I, I definitely want to be discipled by you. Just wait, okay? Or they're going to meet in one day and then uh, they'll cancel on Jamie at the last minute. And it's like, man, you know what? At some point, it's just, it's hard to make that kind of time investment. And so if, if someone is just not available, I mean, you can still disciple them informally, but it may not be the kind of person that you want to say, you know, I'm going to pour everything, all these resources into if they're not available to receive it. And finally, they have to be teachable. They have to be willing to listen to what the word of God says, to listen to your counsel and your wisdom and be able to actually think about it clearly and apply it in their lives. Um, I think a lot of us have probably been in situations, relationships where all the person wants to do is vent, right? They're not actually trying to change. They're not really receptive to your counsel at all. They just kind of want to have someone there to kind of affirm whatever crazy they're talking about, right? And in actuality, they need to be teachable. And if they're not able to be taught, then probably they need to find their counsel elsewhere. So they need to be fat if you're trying to find someone to disciple. Now, how do you choose someone to disciple you? Right? How do you find someone who's going to be your mentor? And it comes down to finding someone whose Christ-likeness you want to emulate in some way. Someone whose Christ-likeness you want to emulate in some way. It doesn't mean that you want to be a perfect clone of them in every area of life. But there might be some person that you look at and say, you know what? This person is a faithful prayer warrior. I want to pray like that. I'm going to ask this person to disciple me in prayer. And, we're, and maybe just for like a month or two months, I just want to work with them on this specific area of my life. 
Or maybe, you know, they're just, a, they're just gifted at counseling. You see the wisdom that they're able to give to people, the way they're able to kind of diagnose the issues of the heart and provide the right scripture, the right truth to counsel them. So I want to do that. You know, I want to ask this person how I, can, how I can grow as a counselor. Or, you know, you see Alan just have total mastery of his children and just a total, complete parenting guru, right? So, you know, I want Alan to teach me what it means to be a father, right? And so adopt me. Adopt me into your family. And I will learn what it means to be a parent from Alan. Um, <clears throat> so you want to find someone. <laughs> that too, yeah. Um, and so you can uh, so find someone who you want to emulate in some way. Now, here's the tricky thing about asking someone to disciple you is I think oftentimes we can get kind of picky. And oftentimes we have kind of an elevated and almost unrealistic picture of who we ought to have disciple us. Like, hmm, who will get this marvelous privilege of entering into my life and giving up hours of their week, every week, to pour into me? Lucky them, right? Who is going to get this wonderful privilege, right? And we have the strict criteria saying, no, 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 no. Their kids are too old. No, 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 their kids are too young. Now, I saw that this person, they, you know, they, they use the wrong translation of the Bible. You know, it's not, I'm looking for someone a little bit better than that. And we kind of, and before long, the only person that can disciple you is like John MacArthur. He's the only guy left on the planet, right, that is able to disciple you. Um, maybe on a lesser scale, like I remember talking to a guy at our church and really encouraging him to think about who he wanted to disciple him. And saying, just go think about it, man. Just go, go think about it. And uh, so he came back later on after a while and said, you know what? I really decided that the guy I want to have disciple me is Kim Kira, who's like the main preaching pastor at our church, like the busiest guy in the world, right? He's managing our staff. He's preaching every week. He's helping the elders with the visioning of the church. And this guy, good guy, godly guy, faithful guy, said, you know, I, I, only Kim Kira can disciple me. You know, this is the only guy. And it's like, you know, man, uh, and you know, Kim was really gracious and he did it, right? But what I, we told the guy, I was like, you know what? Or what I kind of got from him was, it's almost like he didn't see anyone else as having anything else to offer. And the only kind of people that were able to fit this mold of who could disciple him had to be the guys who were like at the upper echelon of church leadership. When in actuality, he was surrounded by like fathers, you know, college students who were older than him, the young adults who were just in the season of life beyond him that were faithful and wise and growing. And he could have learned so much from them. And he kind of missed it. He missed out on all his opportunities to grow. So all that to say... That if you're thinking, you know, you know, man, after this, I really want Pastor Alan, Pastor Cho to disciple me. Maybe. So congratulations, Alan, on now having nothing else to do <laughs> other than meet up with people. But just look around you and think, you know, what can I learn from these other people? You know, what can, how can I, you know, seek counsel from others? In what ways do I want to imitate the different people in this room and humbly recognize that in God's grace is in every Christian? And because of that, you can learn from every Christian. So those are the formal and informal kind of means of discipleship. I think discipleship can also be short-term and it can be long-term. So discipleship, entering into a discipleship relationship, it doesn't have to mean you're, it's like a marriage, right? Till death do you part. Um, I think sometimes that's the fear. It can be short-term. Maybe, you know, just meet for lunch once. And that can be valuable. You meet for lunch once and you think, you know what? I, I really like this guy. I really like this girl. God's doing good things in their life. You know, I'm glad I met with them. Hopefully I was able to encourage them. You disciple them. That's short-term discipleship. Maybe you can meet up with someone or someone asks you if, um, they can, if you can disciple them. And you know kind of the, the commitment, the, kind of the stage of life you're in is just a little difficult. 
and, but you want to meet up with this person. So you say, well, how about this? Let's go through this book, this one book. You know, it's like 12 chapters. You know, so we can go through this in like 12 weeks and like three months. And let's do that together. So what, what you've done is you've said yes to them. You're, you're going to commit yourself to discipling them, but you put a limit on it. And kind of a scope to say, here's kind of where it'll begin. Here's where it'll end. And we can kind of reevaluate after that. Um, and there's some relationships, I think, that you decide, you know what? I'm going to meet with this person for the rest of my life. Like, I'm going to do this person's funeral, whether or not they want me to or not. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to be there for this person. And that would be a blessing. I hope that every person here has those kinds of friendships someday. Um, I have uh, um, a friend of mine, that, you know, or Ben Winarco, so a, a bunch of you guys know him. Uh, he discipled me in college. He's only a year older than me. Uh, but he just meant so much to me during the season of life. And our discipleship at that time was like really frequent. It was like every week we met and went through stuff. And then after we graduated and, you know, we kind of went our separate ways, like I would say he's still discipling me. Because like I, I call him every now and then just to ask him his thoughts on this stuff and just to see what is th- how, he, how he's thinking about life. And I don't know if he would say necessarily the same thing. He's really a humble guy and probably is kind of done dealing with me. But I still consider him, in a lot of ways, to be my discipler. Uh, and I think that will last for the rest of my life because he's always going to be holier than I am. Um, I think one of the things that you have to be realistic with is changes with season of life. Um, that there are some times in your life that are simply going to be busier than others. And you might start off a certain kind of relationship with somebody where you're able to meet really frequently and all of a sudden, bam, they have a kid. And you kind of have to be sensitive to the fact that that changes everything. And you might need to take a break or that how often or what you do when you meet up uh, is going to be very, very different after that point. doesn't mean that they've bailed on you. doesn't mean that the discipleship relationship isn't there. It just means it changed. And so be realistic about whether it's short-term or long-term and realize that all of those can be faithful. And lastly, discipleship is focusing on character, conviction, and competence. So what is it? that you're trying to accomplish as you're meeting with someone in discipleship. I think we want to follow Christ together in these three areas. And so as you're thinking about what you can go through with somebody, how you want to grow as a disciple, what to study next, or what to talk about next, think about these three categories. The first is character. I think in discipleship, we ought to be focusing ourselves on personal holiness and personal devotion to Christ. So if you're discipling somebody, you should be helping that person examine their own hearts to see whether, where their love for Christ might be divided. You know, if, if you detect that they're an angry person, then you can, might work with them on that. If they're struggling with purity, then work with them on that. If they're being lazy, then work with them on that. You want to grow their character and their personal holiness. I think a natural uh, or a necessary part of this is that you offer real accountability. Um, one of the things I, I tell all the guys when I disciple them is the, the first meeting is I tell them, I need you to give me a list of questions that you want me to ask you every time we meet. Every time. And these cannot be the nammy-pammy, like, how was your week kind of things, or what, who's your favorite beetle, right? Now, you, need, you need to ask, I, or the, I, sorry, you need to give me the questions like, you know, did you look at pornography this week? You know, have you been unfaithful to your wife in any way in thought, word, or deed? You know, were, you, um, were you frivolous with your money? Those kinds of hard questions that need to be asked. And I tell the guys, like, you know, I'm not going to meet with you unless you're willing to give me these questions. Because I'm not here to play games. I'm here to help you grow in your character and to focus on Christ together with you. We need to grow in character. Uh, We also want to focus on conviction. 
Okay? And by conviction, I mean just your understanding of Scripture, your, your theology, the development of your theology, the facts in your head about who Jesus is, what the Word of God is, who God is. We want to grow people in their convictions. Uh, and, and to which you say, like, this is, this is the really scary part for a lot of people. You think, I don't know enough. You know, I don't know enough to help people grow in their conviction. I don't know enough Bible. I don't know enough theology. Then learn it together. Um, there was a friend of ours who, uh, she was Jamie's roommate uh, at the beginning of grad school, wasn't a Christian. By the end of her first year in grad school, we pestered her enough and she became a Christian. We evangelized her and she got saved. It was awesome. And then within a couple of years, she was working in college ministry and discipling college students. And the girl that she was discipling, this is the first time she's discipled anybody, right? And she, the first girl, or this girl says, I really want to study the book of Isaiah. I just really want, actually it was because of you. You spoke at WACF on, like the, on the Old Testament. And this girl was like, man, Alan was just so awesome in that retreat and just really convinced me I need to know the Old Testament. So you made poor Sachi learn the book of Isaiah for the first time with her first ever disciple and you know what? She was totally freaked out. And she emailed everyone on staff and said, I need some books on Isaiah and resources on Isaiah stat. Because I need to get this book and figure it out so I can go through it with this girl. And she totally did it. And so it's the thought of, you know, I don't know enough about any of this stuff, you know, to, to be able to teach someone, then learn it with them. And it's okay if you tell them, you know, I don't know this either. So we're going to be working through this together. And as long as you're just one tiny little step ahead of them, you're still smarter than they are, and they don't know any better. So, so go, through a, go through a book of the Bible together, okay? Or you can go through a Christian book together. Listen to sermons together. Talk about theology together. Grow in conviction together. And the last area of focus in discipleship is competency. Competency. And by that, I simply mean growing in the ability to do stuff. Like just being able to do stuff together, growing in skill. I mean, this could be spiritual skills. Like how do you pray? And maybe the person just doesn't know how to pray. So you teach them these models of prayer, like Acts or whatever the case might be. You teach them how to study the word. Like they've never studied the Bible before in an in-depth way. You can teach them how to do that. Or if you're a musician or you've learned, you know how to lead worship, then you can teach them how to do that. Um, uh, you teach them how to lead a Bible study. You can teach them how to counsel others. It might even not even be something overtly spiritual, but just life skills to learn how to be faithful in this age. Like if you're discipling a young college student, like how to make a budget. You know, as far as they know, like the money that's in their wallet is just the money that they're going to spend on Taco Bell that day. They don't know any better, right? But they can learn from you how to manage their money, uh, how to make a meal. Uh, Jamie has had lots of conversations with girls over just they're just kind of intimidated by this idea of how do I go grocery shopping and how do I prepare a meal for my family, all that kind of stuff. And so Jamie's discipling them as she teaches them how to do this kind of stuff. You know, an easy way to do this to, uh, in growing people in competency is to just invite people to do stuff with you. Just your normal stuff. Doesn't it be anything special? Just the normal stuff that you do. If there's something that interests you or something that you have to do anyway, then just invite somebody along so they can share in that with you. Um, Again, you know, Jamie does this all the time, you know, where she just has, I, you know, I'll come home and there's, you know, a young woman who's just there helping Jamie in the kitchen. Um, this happened, you know, with one of the guys that was at our church and, you know, I had to make a brisket for something. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to invite Josh over. So we, I invited Josh over and taught him how to make a brisket, you know, and I don't know how spiritual that felt to him in the moment, but now he knows how to make a brisket and he's growing in competency. 
But part of that is they're not just going to learn how to make a brisket. They're not just going to learn how to you know, buy groceries or manage a budget. They're learning from you what it means to live faithfully in this world, how to live, conduct yourself in love and in joy and in peace, and be able to, to, to just manage even small, mundane things in a way that would honor Christ. And so if there's something that you have to do, just invite someone along. You know, if you're going to lead a Bible study, then sit with somebody while you're kind of figuring that Bible study out and work on it with them together and then work with them over a couple of months to do that. And then after a while, they can lead a Bible study. But just whatever the skill is that you have to do, just invite somebody along to do it with you. That was a lot of material to get through. Um, but as I was thinking about discipleship and just some of the things that make it challenging and exciting, um, I actually got really jealous of you guys um, and very envious of the stage of life and the stage of ministry that you're at. Because our church is a little bit bigger now, and it complicates things a lot uh, because it's hard to disciple. Because to look out at a sea of people, many of whom, like, I don't know if you're a member, I don't know who you are, I don't know your background. And it's kind of intimidating for me to have this mandate in my mind, disciple them. You know, it's like, that's a lot of people to try to manage. But what I really missed were the days at our church when we were smaller. And you could literally know everybody that was at church. Everybody. And you knew who was missing. You knew what was going on. You knew what was happening in their lives. And I would say that that was some of the richest times of discipleship. All levels of it, formal and informal, kind of, you know, there was these um, you know, long-term things and short-term things all meshed together because we all could know each other because of the size of the church that we were at at the time. And so my encouragement to you would be not to waste the blessing of being a smaller church. And God has you here at this stage and this season of life as a church for a specific reason. And I think one of the reasons is so that the discipleship here can be maybe deeper than any discipleship you've ever experienced anywhere else. Don't miss out on that opportunity. Don't waste it. Steward it well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this great task and privilege of discipleship. We thank you for the people that have discipled us. And probably every person here can point to someone who invested in them in some way. Uh, to point them more fully to Christ. And without that person, we would not be the person we are now. Uh, For that person, we thank you, God. We thank you for the ways that we've been able to maybe invest in others. And I pray, God, that you would make discipleship part of the culture of this church, Uh, that uh, every member here would feel the burden of wanting to meet the needs of others and to feel the need to have others meet, uh, to come alongside them in their walks with you. I pray, God, that you would overcome any objections or fears or anxieties uh, about discipleship for any person here. And I pray, God, that you would um, really make discipleship an exciting and rich and vibrant thing at Redeemer Bible Church. So, God, we thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.